and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 155, The School of Hard Knocks. Last time, the SS, namely Sepp Dietrich, commander of the Liebstandarte, had been instrumental in bringing the war in Greece to an end. Not that this was the end of it. The British and Commonwealth troops were still trying to make good their escape. Now it was up to the commander, Kurt Meyer, and his reconnaissance battalion to attempt to catch up to the Brits and stop them from embarking upon waiting ships. By April 26th, Meyer and his motorcycles were at the Gulf of Corinth, and on the other side was the Peloponnese. But more importantly, across the Gulf of Corinth was Petros. Meyer could see Stukas there bombing the last of the departing Brits in the area. Having learned that audacity and speed potentially pay huge dividends, Meyer grabbed whatever boats he could find, filled them with his motorcycles and anti-tank guns, and sent them across. This paid off as the boat returned with British prisoners. On the second trip, Meyer crossed over himself, commandeered cars, and headed for the embarkation point. Meyer was soon among the soldiers of the Wehrmacht, but they informed him that the British were gone. Though the good news was that not every unit had been on time to leave. Hence, enemy troops were still about, but now in hiding. But this was not the high-level excitement craved for by the SS. No, they left the mopping up to the regular troops. Taking a few days off, the SS men traveled throughout the country, saw the sights, and generally enjoyed their time and rise in prestige, considering Dietrich's stunning success just days earlier. For they knew this downtime would not last. But before they got back to work, Himmler himself flew to Greece and pinned on various medals on his men. As May came, the SS loaded up and drove back north to Czech Moravia to prepare for the next battle, wherever that may be. Of course, it was Russia. Hitler had been planning this since mid-1940, and frankly, there was no other direction to go in within Europe. So, on June 22, 1941, almost 4 million men, 3.2 of them Germans, poured across the border between Germany and Russian-controlled territory, from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And Hitler would have his 20 million dead Russians from this side of the Euros, but it was a fight that would last for years, and not the 10 weeks he originally thought. Because the front would be some 800 miles long at the start of the war, and it would certainly only widen as they gained territory, near the Baltic countries, Army Group North, commanded by Field Marshal von Lieb, would take his two armies and one panzer group and make for and capture Leningrad. And with him would be the Totenkopf Division, almost 19,000 men strong, and the Polizei Division, with just over 17,000 men, the latter acting as a reserve. Just below Lieb, Army Group Center, led by Field Marshal von Bock, would make for Smolensk and then Moscow. As this group was going after the capital, Bock would have two armored groups to go along with his two armies. He would also have the Reich Division of 19,000 men. Then, below Bach, 
Field Marshal von Rundstedt would command Army Group South. He and his would advance through the Ukraine and reach for the oil fields in the Caucasus. Supporting his army and Panzer Group would be the Liebstandata Adolf Hitler with almost 11,000 troops and the Viking Division with 19,000 men. This left Kampfgruppe Nord, made up of volunteers from Hungary, Romania, and a few Norwegians, to help the Finnish army cut off much-needed supplies for the Russians in the far north of Finland. They and the SS Regiment 9, not exactly a stirring title, would be stationed away from the fighting. Regiment 9 would be in Norway, but considering what the Eastern Front was to become, these men would be thankful later. To Berlin's thinking, Operation Barbarossa would unfold thusly. First, the Soviet troops in western Russia would be destroyed or captured, which would then leave the German forces and their allies to push east and take much-needed resources, including slave labor. Indeed, the Hunger Plan, which would see Germany take all of Ukraine's food, thereby killing tens of millions of locals, was the brainchild of SS bureaucrat Herbert Bakke, just before Barbarossa commenced. And finally, pushing more to the east, any resistance would be cleaned up, which would leave Moscow and the other major cities open to either be occupied or destroyed. And with that, the war in the east would come to an end. As the sun rose on June 22, 1941, the 160,000 SS troops were brimming with confidence, now had experience, and strongly believed in the Nazi cause, as did the Wehrmacht. The Waffen-SS was at its peak. Stalin's Russia would go the way of France. Moreover, it was hoped that there would be less tension between the regular army and the SS divisions. To help this, the Commissar Order said that any political officers or any prisoners thought to be Bolshevized were to be shot out of hand. With Hitler's covering order, it was hoped the Wehrmacht would get on board and help rid Germany of its greatest threat, the Bolshevik Jew. As Nazi ideology was built on racism, the fight in the East would be much more than another political-slash-military victory. It was a fight for Germany's survival, hence no mercy, and that went for the civilians as well. They, too, were to be removed from the lands forever. But with four million soldiers invading Soviet Russia, the last thing Stalin needed was for any of his many political prisoners joining the attackers. Hence, the NKVD, Stalin's secret police, were ordered to kill some 4,000 political prisoners in one area alone in the Ukraine before the Germans got there. Only then did the NKVD leave, which allowed the locals to form their own government. But that only lasted until the first German arrived on the scene. Then they took over and directed the locals to order the Jews to dispose of the thousands of corpses lying around. That was work worthy of the Jew. And only then were the Jews themselves disposed of. 
But as the Germans were to find out, as they moved quickly east, enemy troops were left behind. In one incident, supposedly, Standerfuhrer Wackerell, commander of the Westland Regiment, was shot by such a straggler. Being a popular leader, the men of the Viking Division were incensed and began the killing of what would be some 600 Jews. That they had not been the lone gunman wasn't the point. The SS troops were angry, the Jews were their enemy, and the restrictions on killing had been loosened. It was inevitable. Besides, years later, SS troops would say they were under orders and would have themselves been shot if they had not obeyed. But to give Operation Barbarossa context, many in Europe and America feared communism. Certainly the elites on the political right, but so did the common people, if mostly because of what the elites told them. But right behind fear is hate. So when Germany's attack in the East got underway, many right-wing groups within German-occupied Europe wanted to take part in the fight that would bring down Stalin's Russia. And Hitler was savvy enough to know that he would need all the help he could get, if not in conquering Russia, then certainly policing it, with its millions of Slavs and Jews. Even before the one-month mark of Barbarossa arrived, Hitler allowed the formation of national legions to help fight the Russians. And he assumed that Himmler would run it all. After all, he had already recruited foreigners. But the SS Fuhrer was hesitant. As much as he wanted the numbers, it cut against the grain of national socialism. So he did not want the responsibility. Bringing in German peoples of different countries was one thing, but this, this smacked of egalitarianism. Not very acceptable for a country of supermen. So the army and the SS divided these raw recruits between themselves. The Wehrmacht took men from France, Croatia, Spain, and French-speaking Belgium, while the Waffen-SS absorbed men from the Netherlands, Flanders, Denmark, in Norway. As these volunteers were only driven by hate and fear when they joined up, they were not in the best physical condition, so standards had to be relaxed. Still, as they would be fighting for Germany and taking a loyalty oath to Hitler himself, both sides were satisfied. Ironically, it will come as no surprise, Hitler and Himmler saw these legions as cannon fodder nothing more. They could fight for Germany all they wanted, but Berlin would still dictate terms to all those within its sphere. There was no such thing as raising one's status, even by fighting. You were either a German or you were not. The various countries offered up various numbers of men, much to the chagrin of the hard-working recruiters, but in the end they were all labeled legions. It would take time to train these men, and some were ready by the winter of 41-42. Ironically, by then, the first echelon of Soviet defenders had been destroyed, and Berlin assumed that that was the end of all major operations. But the high command and those foreign legions were about to find out 
that Stalin had many more armies in his cupboard. As Army Group North, headed by Field Marshal von Lieb, advanced, its spear tip was the 56th Panzer Corps, commanded by General Heinrich von Manstein of General Hoppner's 4th Panzer Group, and as it was a narrow front, certainly relative to Army Group Center, Lieb was counting on von Manstein's speed and audacity rather than clever maneuvers, and the field marshal was not disappointed. By June 26th, the 56th Panzer Corps had reached the Latvian city of Devinsk. This was 200 miles into enemy territory, and thus a staggering success. Even more, the Russians had not had time to blow the bridges there, which allowed von Manstein to establish a bridgehead on the other side of the Divina River. It was amazing successes like this that helped ease the tension between General Hopner of the 4th Panzer Group and SS Obergruppenführer Theodor Eck, head of the Totenkopf. They had butted heads in France the previous year, and since then had been itching for a fight. But then came the monumental goals of Barbarossa and its opening moves that had been astounding. The past was forgotten for the fatherland. And yet, now Manstein found himself having to wait for someone, anyone, to relieve him of the bridge across the Davina River so he could keep going. With such a narrow front, the fighting could easily become a slugfest, a war of attrition, and the invaders didn't have the time or the manpower for that. But this is where some of the motorized SS units came into their own. Much faster than the plodding infantry, the bridge was soon secured and Manstein was off again. Even better, the Totenkopf was trusted with engaging and destroying the units that Manstein had purposefully passed by in his haste. The Panzer General certainly must have trusted Eck to turn his back on the enemy. In fact, the Totenkopf was soon ordered to follow up behind the 56th Corps as it pushed on. But the SS Division got its first real test on July 1st as it reached Kraslau in southeastern Latvia. Stendantenführer Max Simon was leading his 1st Infantry Regiment, and their part of the line was making for the town. They fought bravely and savagely enough, but that wasn't the problem. Tried and true tactics were not being used by the regiment, as if they had not learned them in their training. Several opportunities were missed, which affected the units to their right and left. So much so that the commander of the 121st Infantry Division forwarded a complaint to the 56th Corps. A part of that complaint read that the Major General himself had to go leave his position and make for the town to help the Toltenkopf untangle their armored vehicles, which the Major General would gladly have taken off their hands and treated with more respect. Further, once he had done that, when he walked closer to what was supposed to be the front, he found the advanced SS units out of line. Why? So they could go and loot the various houses and stores. As these men had once been prison guards, they were used to stealing from their wards, and this habit, it seemed, was hard to let go. 
The next challenge for the Totenkopf was when they came upon the Stalin line. Though it was not continuous, or, as developed as the Maginot line, the SS division was, unfortunate enough, to come into contact with a well-manned section of it. They were to hit a part of the line near the town of Sebesh, just before the sun rose, on July 6th. The men sent off their pre-attack artillery only to have the Soviets return in kind. An entire section of the Totenkopf line seemed to have simply disappeared when the smoke cleared. Something more was needed. Coming up from an adjacent unit, several Stug three assault guns mixed in with the shaken-up Totenkopf men. The Stug three, built along the lines of a Panzer three, had a fixed superstructure instead of a turret, which held a 75mm anti-tank gun. This increased firepower helped push the Soviets back, but they stopped running when they reached Opachka, another well-developed part of the Stalin line. The good news was that the SS men were able to evade the larger guns and getting close to the line of bunkers and fortifications. But now, they had to take the heavily concrete bunkers out, one by one. The Totenkopf men were now forced to use machine guns, flamethrowers, grenades, and even their knives. Basically, they had to get their hands dirty, which was easy enough when dealing with captive Jews or POWs. This was something else. What they were about to engage in was the equivalent of house-to-house fighting, where the other person's house is well entrenched behind a fortified barrier. The SS men would fight their way close to a bunker. Then high-explosive charges would be set to damage or break open the bunker. Sometimes the explosion would kill all inside or incapacitate them. Other times, there was still more fighting to do. The SS men would fight like this for three straight days. It quickly came to the point where they couldn't remember a life before this town and the casualties it took to keep advancing took a toll on the men who were used to being the ones inflicting pain and fear. At one point, Obersturmfuhrer Klinter was leading an attack to take a nearby hill. As he got to the foot of the height, he turned around to ready his men. He found himself standing alone. Because for the second that they stopped advancing, the SS men took cover. They had seen already too many comrades die. Fortunately for the hidden SS men, their communication with their artillery unit was working just fine. The coordinates were called in, shells were lobbed, and the Russians were forced to keep their heads down. Only then did the SS men move forward after Klinkter yelled at them. The three days of fighting went back and forth. But normally, the ground the Germans took was only lost for an hour or two before they got it back. Then they moved forward. As one soldier put it, by the time Opachka was theirs, the town no longer existed. It was only a shell. It was then the Totenkopf men realized the life they had left behind as prison guards and the one they had now. That and the many Russian troops before them were not the cowards their officers had told them they were. 
Among the rubble were the bodies of 88 SS officers and 1,777 NCOs and enlisted men of the Totenkopf. And one of the 88 was Eck himself. His command car had driven over a mine, which seriously damaged both of his legs. He was sent back to Germany for surgery and recuperation. Kleinheisterkamp stepped into his place. As the drive of Army Group North was going well, despite the overall casualties, General Manstein was pleased, and in such a mood, he thanked the troops around him. One letter read, I express my gratitude for your high achievements. But that was publicly, when, among certain officers, he expressed his doubts about the Waffen-SS, specifically the Totenkopf Division, because one, he had seen it firsthand, and two, he knew that he had to rely on them for his own success. Oh, they marched fine, and were eager to fight and savage when they had to be, as long as they were not too pressured. But what really worried him were not the men, but the officers leading them. Their lack of training and experience was obvious, and it was getting too many men killed or wounded. The war for Russia, short as it was expected to be, was still in its early stage. The SS division might bleed itself to death before reaching Leningrad, and what would that mean for Manstein's tank crews? He admitted to his diary, I doubt if there is anything harder to learn than gauging the moment when a slackening of the enemy's resistance offers the attacker his decisive chance. But his experience so far was mostly having to repeatedly come to the division's assistance, even without being able to prevent a sharp rise in SS casualties. Between their unexpected casualties and the injection of a new Obergruppenführer with Eck on his way back to a hospital, the Totenkopf needed a few days to reorganize itself. This included the dissolution of the 2nd Infantry Regiment. Such had been their losses. Those remaining were parceled out to the two remaining regiments. But by July 15th, it was back to business. With the mechanized Totenkopf supporting Manstein's 56th Panzer Corps. Yet, the deeper the Panzers led, the worse the road situation became, as in, there were fewer of them. What's more, streams and small rivers crisscrossed the countryside, slowing down the entire enterprise. This the Soviets used to their advantage with well-staged ambushes and close-quarter attacks. Not to mention the Soviets who were already behind the German front lines, as the panzers had whizzed by. Just four days after they had started up again, the Toltenkopf received its official, though temporary, new leader, Brigade Fuhrer George Kepler, handpicked by Himmler himself. Kepler had experience fighting with the Reich Division and the Deutschland. He should do well until Eck reappeared. Then suddenly, just as Manstein and the Totenkopf were learning each other, the SS division was pulled away and put with General Moritz von Weichtorin's 28th Army Corps. Not only would the 28th and the Totenkopf have to learn each other anew, but the officers on each side 
instantly hated each other. Insults and protests were thrown around like shells. If anything, the war was a welcome break from all the bickering. This shift of the Totenkopf would give the SS Polizei Division its chance to prove itself, now that it was called to the front, which it quickly proceeded not to do. When the Polizei reached the Luga line, which helped shield Leningrad, the by-now-experienced Soviet troops straightaway killed 2,000 of their 17,347 men. One of those was their new commander. The Polizzi would, like the Totenkopf, still be aggressive, but was a bit more wise as to the ways of the enemy. As further east, Army Group North pushed, the firmer became the defenders in front of them. As Leningrad neared, the progress halted, to which Hitler told Field Marshal von Lieb to switch tactics. Leningrad was to be starved into submission, and the Finns would help. This was preferable to fighting. Boring, perhaps, but one lived longer. Of course, now the Totenkopf and Victorin's corps had to sit there and stare at each other, which they did, rather than watch for people trying to escape the city, or for that matter, watch for any Soviet counterattack, which happened on August 14th. Eight infantry divisions and one cavalry corps suddenly came at the German occupiers. Personal slights could wait. Now was a time not so much for victory, but simple survival.